From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. One of the first novels to use Brisbane City as its primary landscape was The Curse and Its Cure by Dr Thomas Pennington Lucas. The novel was published in 1894 in two volumes and printed by J. H. Reynolds of Elizabeth Street here in Brisbane CBD. The first volume of Dr. Lucas's novel was apocalyptically titled The Ruins of Brisbane in the year 2000. He was, as it turns out, an eminent doctor with broad interests ranging from mathematics to butterfly collecting. Dr. Lucas was born near Edinburgh in 1843 to a Wesleyan minister father, Samuel Lucas, and his mother, Elizabeth Broadhurst. Young Thomas, it could be said, arrived in the world when faith and science were in collision. Thomas took this interior debate a step further. He believed he had a mission to save humanity after a brush with death as a teenager. He believed God had called him to a medical career. His father had taught him homeopathy and he went on to practice in the slums of Lambeth in London until his wife Mary died. Thomas then lit out for Australia. After spending some time in Victoria and writing copiously, he published everything from Do Thyself No Harm, a lecture to men, which included much discussions on the peril of masturbation and natural history articles. Dr Lucas sought the warm climes of Queensland, where he settled in Brisbane. He set up his own practice and dispensary and filled his home in South Brisbane with specimens of butterflies, including a previously unidentified example, which was named after him. In 1890, at the age of 47, after the death of his second wife and their two children, Lucas bought a 16-hectare farm in Acacia Ridge, about 13 kilometres out of Brisbane CBD. In Acacia Ridge, Lucas grew pawpaws in the belief that they contained remarkable medicinal properties and could cure a huge array of ailments, from constipation to preventing infections. After tending to the pawpaw garden, Dr Lucas wrote and published his dystopian two-volume novel. Chapter 1 of The Ruins of Brisbane in the Year 2000 opens with a man sailing towards Brisbane up the river aboard his yacht, the Lady Bertha, in the year 2000. At first I believe I must be in dreamland or Hades, the yachtman reflects. Everything is so desolate. No sign of cultivation meets the eye. No houses are to be seen. No mobs of cattle graze on the riverbanks. Nature rules in primitive sway. If man ever discovered this shore, where is he today? In the novel, inexplicably, another sailing boat approaches our shocked wanderer. It is captained by Mr. West and his beautiful young wife. So how was the settlement destroyed, asked Mrs. West. In the Civil War, the narrator answers, the Battle of Leeton. As they are discussing the recent history of Brisbane in the year 2000, in this novel written in the 19th century, the trio spot a Bengal tiger roaming the riverbank near where the upmarket suburb of Hamilton had once been. Had you any zoological gardens in Brisbane, asks Mrs. West. Neither science nor art flourished in Brisbane, madam, the narrator replies. Cash and bobbies, whiskey and cigars is a descriptive gang of Brisbane's ruling aspirations. Then they make contact with the man on the shore, Mr Greathead, who has apparently been granted the district of ancient Brisbane as a cattle run. Through this character, the three travellers learn of the fate of the vain, inglorious city that lies in ruin at their feet in the imagined year 2000. In addition to being the writer of the first novel to ever been set in Brisbane, Lucas is, of course, the same man who invented Dr. Lucas' pawpaw ointment that is sold all around the country in little red containers. Up next, you will hear about another Brisbane novel. You will hear about He Died with a Falafel in His Hand from John Birmingham. The thing about Brisbane is that everyone knows you or knows about you. In small world theory, there's only six points of separation between any two individuals, but you can trim the numbers down in Brisbane. Everyone's stories intersect, crossing over and through each other like sticky strands of destiny and DNA. I lived with a couple of dozen people in one house, and none of them were formally interviewed before they moved in. That's not unusual. You tend to rent whole houses with friends and the friends of friends in Brisbane. Even moving into a room 
in an existing household is mostly a matter of trading history and establishing common reference points. Oh, right, yeah, you know Chris. He used to live with my last flatmate's girlfriend and her cousin. Then Chris, the girlfriend, and her cousin turn up to help you move your furniture in and you all sit in the front veranda drinking tea, watching the storms roll in and pushing back the envelope of the extended family that is Brisbane. The classic chronicler of Brisbane share housing, John Birmingham. That's from his book, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, in case you haven't heard of it. It details pretty much every kind of uncomfortable living situation you can think of, from unsanitary roommates, a roommate who camps in the living room and gets in the way of the TV, roommates jealously in love with other roommates, violent roommates, and criminal roommates. I remember there was, uh, I had a flatmate in, in Darlinghurst in Sydney uh, who ran a pretty sizable credit card scam out of the house. She scammed us and she, she scammed a lot of companies. So the way she scammed us uh, was she said, oh, I've got some mate who is setting up a business in Sydney and he needs a phone line, but he hasn't like got the quids to open an office yet. And, I was wondering if, I, if we could stick a second phone in downstairs, and he'll be—he'll uh, pay for it, and he'll—you know—he'll buy us a new TV or a video player or something like that. And in those days, you know, having a video player was a big deal in a share house. So, and so we we said yes, and, but the whole thing just felt really scammy, and um, I just started to sort of make notes of what was going along, just in case somewhere down the track it ended up blowing up in our face and. It sort of blew up in our face because she was running a scam, as it turned out. They used the, um, the phone line as a sort of soft identity guarantee. So, you know, this person has this phone line, and so, you know, that then allows them to get some kind of soft credit, like a store card at Katie's or something like that, and then the soft credit lets them get the hard credit. And uh, this is years and years before anything like... Um, 9-11 and the growth of the national security state and they'd only really it was, it was before gst like tax avoidance was still possible for people dealing in like unregistered bank accounts and stuff so it was really i look back at it now it's not that long ago and yet in terms of being monitored and, and surveilled uh it it's like the wild west you could still get away with all sorts of shit and it's just it's not that far back they must have scammed about 35, 40 grand's worth of stuff. And I think what they were doing was uh, buying shit and then reselling it. And then the last couple of things they bought were a couple of tickets to the US and they, they pissed off over there. Do you know social living is the best? Do you know social living is the best? Do you know Social living is the best. Do you know? Social living is the best. It was a different era to the one today. Brisbane was a lot smaller, but still undergoing rapid growth. Culturally, thanks to Premier Joe Bielke Peterson and the Nationals government, it was a lot harder to be entertained. about big cities and it's a, it's the thing about big cities anywhere in the world is that they afford the possibility for random interactions that's what makes them great that's why you go to a city like LA or London or New York because you literally have no idea what's going to happen next who you're going to run into what path your life might take after that chance coincidence not so much in Brisbane. You pretty much know who you're going to be running into and you pretty much know the consequences of it. It, it was like, you know, it's going back to those, uh, those two guys I was talking about at Triple Z who used to do the What's On in Brisbane tonight read at six o'clock, you know. Nothing. No, there's nothing on. And, um, but that, that was the Bielke Peterson era. That was. Well, there was, there was nothing on mm. because, um, you know, licensing laws are 
for one thing, one tiny thing, meant that it was very, very difficult to open up a bar, for instance. Like we, we take um, we take groovy, weird little bars full of people's leftover furniture, like you know, salted throughout the suburbs. We take that stuff for granted now. And there's some fantastic bars, like every bit as good as you get in places like Melbourne or uh, San Francisco. Well, in fact, better than San Francisco because you can't can't afford the rent there anymore. Um, but in those days, you either went to uh, a pub, which was inevitably a bloodhouse, um, and after 10 o'clock of an evening or um, really early on the weekends, you, you ended up in one of the, um, the Bellino places. If you were really after a drink, you had to go to a, a brothel or a, um, uh, an illegal casino. And... You know, I, I don't for a minute imagine that Joe was sitting there thinking, oh, we, we've got to make sure that groovy little bars don't open so that, you know, the, the Bellinos can keep raking in the money. I, I, I think that the old fool was genuinely not unaware of that system, but um, genuinely thought it had nothing to do with him. Uh, and, you know, that the state of which he was the... The, the sort of you know the, the controlling figure was just disconnected from it that was just criminals doing what criminals do when in fact it was criminals working with police officers and you know at, at two removes with politicians to uh, maintain what was an effective monopoly on the service of alcohol between certain hours in the city and so it was you know it was a quiet place um I remember I was just telling someone the other day an uber driver actually he was this guy was like in his late 20s and I don't know how we got on to the topic of it, but um, I was telling him what Brisbane was like uh, before everything changed. And the story I told him was about closing hours on Sunday. Like if you wanted to drink on a Sunday, you either went to the pub between 11 and 1 when it was open or you could go back between 5 and 7. It was just this bizarre sort of system where they opened the doors for a couple of hours and shut them down and opened them up again. It was crazy bullshit. Um, and I, I remember my flatmate Pete, who was a bank clerk, who's in the movie. He's the guy who lives in the tent um, in the movie. And he did live in a tent uh, in our apartment. Uh, he and I went to the cricket nets to roll our arms over for a couple of hours one Sunday morning because, you know, what else are you going to do? And um, we got thirsty and decided we wanted a drink, but we'd missed the morning opening and um, there was just nothing for it. We had to go to the airport. I, I forgot that was the other place you could get a drink on a Sunday was the airport. So we drove out there and we had a few drinks and we got quite pissed. And um, <clears throat> I had no money, but Pete was a bank clerk, so he had a, he had a bank card, I think, with $500 credit on it. And... Uh, we were so drunk, we thought, oh, we'll, we'll fly down to Sydney and have a drink down there. So we got uh, a couple of standby tickets, which were a thing in those days. Um, and we, you know, we got to Sydney and back for about 200 bucks, and we had a drink in the airport bar. And, and that was a sort of bizarre bullshit that you did in those days, because there was literally nothing else to do. And that, um, that was how, I guess, my my sort of share house life and, and social life was affected by the system in those days, uh, was that you just, you, you had very few options for doing stuff. Um, you either, you know, went down to the pub, drank 18 beers and got into a fight, or you entertained yourself. And then, on top of the difficulties of trying to have a good time, you've got the added problem of finding people to actually live with. So, Jake McMillan set off on a great journey, wearisome and soul-destroying, comparable to Mao's Great March or Ian Botham's Charity Walk. Jake McMillan set off in search of a phone box in Jimbalee. Trippy Z, what for can I you do? Oh, hello. Um, I'd like to put in one of those accommodation thingies. Are you another bastard landlord using us to rip people off? Oh, no. Good. Hold on while I find a pen. 
Wanted one smoker for a large house uh, made of bricks. Uh, must have food and ability to connect, connect gas, gas and electricity. electricity. Um, no cats or no fish. fish. No, no, no bond, no, rent negotiable. No, no, Hold on, is that no right. rent, bond negotiable? Negotiable, right. Okay, thank you. And so was sown the seeds of subversion. A down-at-heels cultural revolutionary and icon, Prudence Avita Master's Apprentice, was to hear this bizarre offer of accommodation through a mist of song titles, pronouns and half-forgotten half-truths. This house is mine, they gave this house to me. Give me a home with a small garden gnome and a letterbox mark no circulars. Thank you, thank you. And for my next number, this house is my house. Okay, okay, Tinnies, I'm coming. Hi, is this the house with the six free bedrooms? Yeah, well, no, well, yes, well, I'll be using some of them, but... But, well, most of them, in fact, but, but come in anyway, come in. So, do you read newspapers? Oh, only the lifestyle pages. Oh, do you watch television? No, electricity, I, I, but I've tried not to miss Sale of the Century over the years. Do you eat dairy products? Well, actually, I eat nothing lately. Good, I'll leave in tonight. Got any food? Oh, only some fantails. Keep the only sibling ones. I'm doing a collage. How long you lived here? Oh, since midday. You got any money? Nah, I spent my last six dollars on buses getting here. Have you got any? No. Do, do you like Frank Sinatra? Oh, no. Do you play the trumpet? No. Do you? No. That's good. We're doing just fine. You're not a Capricorn, are you? Oh, no. Oh, good. Getting to know you Getting to know all about you Getting to like And so came into the same sphere of influence the least streetwise capitalist and the fakest political visionary of their times. Theirs was to be an acquaintance that would go down in the small print of history. That's from a 4ZZZ series on share housing from the late 80s. So what's changed since then? Look, I think the main thing that's changed is um, is basically the uh, the economics of the situation. Like when I was share housing, it was still possible for half a dozen people to band together and rent a rundown Queenslander in the inner city because there were still plenty of rundown Queenslanders. You could rent them for the equivalent of thirty bucks a head. You, know, you get six people in, you're paying 180 bucks a week rent, maybe someone sleeping in a tent on the lounge room floor, but you know it was it was reasonable, it was doable. Um, that's just not possible anymore. Most of that stock of housing is is gone. It's been bought and renovated, uh, and you, you you can't rent it, or if you do rent it, you know you need a a full time professional or semi professional job just to afford your part of the rent. And so um, with that and the fact that, you know, uh, students now are, are paying through the nose for their degrees. Uh, the other, the, the thing that we keep forgetting about from the, the 1980s is that all of us who were on campus were effectively there for free. Uh, we, we had to pay student fees, which was, uh, I, think, I think mine was like 180 bucks a year and I considered it a, gro- a grotesque imposition. Um, and uh, I, I, I assumed I got a student loan in my last year of university just to cover some living expenses and and stuff and the the loan was five hundred dollars and it felt like a crushing debt oh my god i left university with five hundred dollars in debt i'm i'm never going to get out from under this all that's changed like you know uh, any kid who now rolls on a campus at the age of 17 leaves at the age of 20 with tens of thousands of dollars in debt and they're going to be paying that off through the the tax system forever so they want to get as much of their degree done as quickly as possible that bond university model of just doubling up on your subjects and just getting the hell out as, as quickly as you can is now much more prevalent everywhere and um the actual built environment in which we live is, has changed. So, you know, you can live in uh, the inner city, but you're not going to be living in a rundown Queenslander where you sit out on the, the deck smoking bongs in the afternoon as the 
the storms roll in, you're probably going to be in some sort of increasingly shabby 1990s, early 2000s sort of six-pack or high-rise with two bedrooms. Maybe you can squeeze three people in there, but you're still going to be paying through the, the nose for it. I remember when I was on campus in the 1980s, there were a lot of 60s people around, like 1960s activists who used to complain, you know, the kids these days, they're not like us. Well, of course they're fucking not like you. Like, you know, you, they're different. Like, it's a different world, different kids. And so the kids today live in a very different world from the, the one described in, in Falafel. It still surprises me when people run a production of the stage play and um, it gets an audience. I guess the audience is probably increasingly old. into my kitchen and as you feed and we're in my you can settle and I will listen to the problems that you find The area now known as Petrie is in the Pine Rivers Shire, north of Brisbane. Before European contact, the region between the Brisbane River to the south, the Pine River to the north, Moreton Bay to the east, and to the west as far as the Lockyer Valley, was rich in natural food resources. Every three years, the traditional owners of the region would trek to the Blackall Mountain Range in the north, when local tribes shared the Bunya Pine Nut Harvest. During early white settlement, the local indigenous people attempted to live in peace with the colonists. Much of what we know today about the area and the customs of the traditional owners comes from the writing of Tom Petrie, the son of a settler family and whom the area came to be named after. Tom's daughter Constance published a book of his reminiscences in 1904. She wrote of her father's memory of the region. Bonyi, the native name for the pine, Araucaria bidwilli, has been wrongly accepted and pronounced Bonya. The Bonya tree bears huge cones full of nuts, which the natives are very fond of. Each year the trees will bear a few cones, but it was only in every third year that the great gatherings of the natives took place, for then it was that the trees bore a heavy crop and the blacks never failed to know the season. These gatherings were really like huge picnics, the Aborigines belonging to the district sending messages out to invite members from other tribes to come and have a feast. 
Perhaps 15 would be asked here and 30 there, and they were mostly young people who were able and fit to travel. Then these tribes would in turn ask others. For instance, the Bribe Blacks, the Gunda tribe, on receiving their invitation, would perchance to invite the Turbal people to join them. And the latter would ask the Logan or Yagapal tribe and other island blacks, and so on from tribe to tribe all over the country. For the different tribes were generally connected by marriage, and the relatives thus invited each other. My father was present at one of these feasts when a boy, for over a fortnight. He's the only free white man who has ever been present at a Bonyi feast. He was only 14 or 15 years old at the time, and travelled from Brisbane with a party of about 100, counting the women and children. They camped the first night at Booyabar, the native name for the creek crossing at what is now known as Anogra. After the campfires were made and break winds of bushes put up as a protection from the night, the party all had something to eat, then gathered comfortably around the fires and settled themselves ready for some good old yarns, till sleep would claim them for his own. Tales were told of what the forefathers did, how wonderful some of them were in hunting and killing game, also in fighting. The blacks have very lively imaginations of what happened years ago, and some of the incidents were remembered of their big fights, etc., that were truly marvellous. Arriving at the Black Oil Range, the party made halt at the first Bonyu tree they came to, and a black fellow accompanying them who belonged in the district climbed up the tree by means of a vine. When a native wishes to climb a tree that has no lower branches, he cuts notches or steps in the trunk as he goes up, ascending with the help of a vine around the stem. But my father's experience has been that the blacks would never by any chance cut a Bonyu tree, affirming that to do so would injure the tree, and they climbed with the vine alone the rough surface of the tree helping them. This tree they came upon was a good specimen, 100 feet high, before a branch, and when the native climbing could reach a cone, he pulled one and opened it with a tomahawk to see if it was all right. The other said that if he did not do this, the nuts would be empty and worthless, and father noticed afterwards that the first cone was always examined before being thrown to the ground. Then the man called out that all was well, and throwing down the cone, he broke a branch, and with it poked and knocked off other cones. As they fell to the ground, the blacks assembled below would break them up and, taking out the nuts, put them in their dilly bags. Afterwards, they went further on and, camping, made fires to roast the nuts. They had a great feed, roasted, that were very nice. Great times those were, and what lots of fun these children of the woods had in catching patermelons in the scrub with their nets, also in obtaining other food, of which there was plenty, such as opossums, snakes and other animals, turkey eggs, wild yams, native figs, and a large white grub which was found in dead trees. These latter were as thick as a finger and about three inches long. They were very plentiful in the scrubs, and the natives knew at a glance where to look for them. They would eat these raw with great relish, as we do an oyster, or they would roast them. Then the young tops of the cabbage tree palm and other palms which grew there served as a sort of vegetable, and were not bad, according to my father. The bonyi nuts were generally roasted, the blacks preferring them so, but they were also eaten raw. You heard Kim there reading Tom Petrie's Reminiscences, published in 1904. As a child, Tom Petrie played with the local children. As an adult, he defended Aboriginal people who were hunted by the so-called native police and defended them when their use of Aboriginal laws conflicted with the laws of the colonial government. Contact and land-use conflicts between white settlers and the local inhabitants led to atrocities being committed against the Indigenous people, including incidences of rape and assault, and the Kilcoy poisonings of 1842, which killed 30 or more Jagera people and escalated a war by the Jagera against white settlers in the Lockyer Valley. Historian Libby Connors, author of the book Warrior, spoke to us about Petrie and the conflicts between Aboriginal law and European law in the Petrie and Pine Rivers region. It has a fascinating history. The first white settlement would have been, you know, in or about 1843. Before that, oh well, and it still was, uh, Aboriginal country. And the main elder we know for that area was a really interesting man called Dalapai. 
And we know of quite a bit about Delapai because Tom Petrie recorded some important discussions he had with Delapai. He seems to have been the elder for Pine Rivers South and Pine Rivers North. Today, the ecology of the area, of course, is quite disrupted by dams, but those two rivers were very important landmarks for Europeans trying to understand the place and obviously very important Aboriginal country. Tom Petrie is such an important character in early Brisbane. His family arrived in penal settlement days when the place was still a closed convict settlement, so no free persons were to enter Brisbane without the permission of the British officials. His father was appointed superintendent of works, so he his father was a, a stonemason by trade, but in today's terms he had become more of a, a master craftsman with responsibility for construction. But Tom was a sort of middle to younger child in a big family, so he was six years old when his parents arrived here. It's a really interesting reminder of the freedom that children once had in childhoods, that he had so much time to spend with his Aboriginal companions. He just became such an important bridge between Aboriginal communities and white communities because he learnt to speak the local languages um, and he often was the only white they would talk to after there'd been conflict Mm. to give their side of the story. So, Can, Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of conflicts that were going on between the Aboriginal people in the area and the settlers? Yes, well certainly there were military Aboriginal conflict around Brisbane, around Kangaroo Point, but the main fighting seems to have happened over on Stradbroke Island. After that, once some leading warriors of the Kwandamuka and Mianjin people, um, the Turbul people of Brisbane, Mianjin was the name they gave to the penal settlement area, of that area of the river, which is now a CBD Once they lost some of their leading men, they seemed to have decided that they would try and avoid open conflict with the soldiers in particular. Whereas the other peoples of the district, they didn't have to be too concerned about white incursions until after the British closed the convict settlement and said, right, we're now going to open it to free settlement. So pastoralists started moving into the area from 1841. Up on the Darling Downs, 1840, they didn't move down into the Brisbane Valley until August, September, 1841. And then they started setting up throughout what we would today call the Lockyer Valley, running from Rosewood and Marburg. So essentially the way this district was administered, you had a closed penal settlement under the command of a commandant, but once pastoralists move into an area, the government in Sydney would say, "Okay, this is a new pastoral district. We're appointing this official, a commissioner of Crown Lands. He will be responsible for settling any disputes between squatters about the limits of their leases and also in dealing with any disputes with Aboriginal people or any disputes with convict servants. The white pastoralists just circumnavigate the penal settlement, what was a 50-mile or 80-kilometre radius. Some of them broke the law and actually came within the the 50-mile zone. The Lockyer Valley people, the Yagara, they, by 1842 or 43, they were openly saying to the Europeans, we are at war. A man called Campbell had become blood brother to the son of the leading fighting man of the Yagara, a man by the name of Moppy. Um, And that was a way Aboriginal people had of saying, "Okay, you're now in our country, it's our law, you need to know your relationship to everyone so you can obey the law. Um, And that's why you would make men who you thought could be an ally part of your system of law and governance. It was a privilege for whites to be bestowed this honour. And so they, uh, Multagra, you know, according to Aboriginal protocol, Aboriginal law, warned Campbell that once his father was killed in a collision, they said, we want you people out. By August, September 1841, much of the Lockyer Valley was very fraught with sporadic conflict, initially focusing on attacks on stock, sheep and cattle. But by 1843, they've said, we want to stop you people any further. Every time your wagons pass along through our territory, we are going to stop them, we're going to kill the men and take your provisions because we don't want any more of you coming through our country and going to the Darling Down. They sent a message into Campbell um, and he, he records it.
But over on the coast, in Dalapais country and further north, the wide incursions were not permanent yet, not in 1841 or 1842. And there, Aboriginal people have said, mm, you know, they were watching things, but they seem to have said, well... If they come onto our country, our law will apply and we will take action. Mm. But they don't seem to necessarily have said that there should be a general uprising. So the elder in around the penal station was a man whom the British called the Duke of York, um, but whom his descendant, Maruchi Barampa, calls Dakiyaka. That, she said, was his real name. And he and the people on Strabrook Island, the Kwandamuka, seem to have sort of said, again, you know, they developed relationships with the convict boat crews that were set up when they set up a um, pilot station on North Strabrook Island. And so they didn't seem to want to have open conflict. I don't think they liked the British presence at all, but they were happy to trade and live amongst them, you know, to the extent that they wanted to and mm. otherwise ignore them. Initially, it's only the Yagra who say, let's go to war. One of the important things about Tom Petrie is that he did protect Aboriginal people who were being hunted. He needed to hide from white settlers. What escalated things to that point where he needed to do that? He didn't always protect Aboriginal people. He understood Aboriginal culture, but he also understood British culture. And he was just a young boy. He actually gets to attend one of the big bunya gatherings in the Blackwell Range. And he also is allowed to attend a young boys' initiation ceremony. These are privileges that are extended to him because he's formed such close relationships with Dalapai's son. He understands Aboriginal culture very intimately. He tells us very little, though, about Aboriginal women because um, he's only allowed to attend boys' ceremony. So we don't have anyone who's been able to tell us about the women's ceremonies and the women's politics. And still, of course, Tom is never initiated, so he never gets he never gets full knowledge. But he was often, the whites would say, OK, there's been an attack. We don't know this country. And they would go to Andrew Petrie, Tom's father, and say, can Tom please come with us to help find these Aboriginal people? He's a teenager. He's really reluctant. He doesn't get given a horse. <laughs> he often is leading these whites out on foot, and it's, sometimes it's summer. So it's quite interesting when his daughter does record some of these incidents that he's a reluctant boy taking these soldiers out. And the soldiers are often sent out in uniform, and it's stinking hot. Because the Yagra to the west are so militant, there a military station is actually set up at Halidon. So Tom Petrie's not involved in that. That's a bigger distance. That's left to the commissioners of Crown Lands who are mounted to protect the road north to the Darling Downs. And all that means is that the Yagra then moved a bit further east and started attacking the Europeans near what's present-day Rosewood. And the old road, I gather, was followed the railway line. But it did mean that later, when Tom's an adult, Aboriginal people, and there's still conflict going on, there's conflict around Brisbane until 1865. So it's a very long frontier, 1824 to 1865. 1865, there's a horrific incident in which the Native Police murder an Aboriginal boat crew that was not hostile. They were actually cooperating with Europeans. That becomes an admitted atrocity that is reported in the newspaper and it's at that point that the Native Police Detachment is withdrawn. So you've got 41 years from 1824 when they first land at Redcliffe and there's um, Aboriginal opposition and that forces them to move up to the spot at the present CBD right through until 1865. That last incident takes place on the beach at Sandgate. I guess a different way to look at it, though, would be when the last overt attack on white authority takes place near Brisbane. The incidents that I've been tracking, I think that last attack is 1859 when some white men uh, go missing in Moreton Bay and the evidence is, and, we, and Tom Petrie tells us the story of why the young Aboriginal man killed those whites. Um, and that's a good example of how Tom Petrie acted as a go-between. The newspaper doesn't report the fact that the white men had actually raped some Aboriginal women who were part of the group. Mm. Now, that's why the Aboriginal men reacted. And there is still Aboriginal law being enacted against whites even when they think they've got control of Brisbane and its suburbs, but they admit when this incident happens in the Bay that they had no means of actually arresting these Aboriginal men or ensuring safety in the waters of Moreton Bay. 
So it must have been really hard for, for Tom having friends within the Aboriginal community and also being expected to, to act against them. Yes, he clearly was uh, torn and, and that comes through as well when he's interviewed a couple of years later in 1861 by uh, the Select Committee of the Queensland Parliament, which is a notorious document and blood-chilling. I mean, it's now available digitally if you want an insight into how brutal the white colonisation of this state was. People should read that 1861 Select Committee. It's, it's chilling. I still remember feeling sick to my stomach as I read some of the evidence given at that Select Committee, which is basically the more aggressive parliamentarians who are also pastoralists wanting to stop criticism of the Native Police and give full authority to the white officers of that Native Police force. It had been brought about because there was so much dissension and concerned people in Brisbane saying this has to stop, this is appalling but in the end the parliamentarians turned it round and turned it into an absolute victory for their aggressive frontier policy and gave full authority even when white officers admitted that they had more or less acted outside the law. Eradication, annihilation, degradation. In the century and a half since the height of Aboriginal conflict with settlers in the Brisbane region, the traditional owners have continued their struggle against the obliteration of their culture. In 2012, the Brisbane Sovereign Embassy was established at Musgrave Park in inner-city Brisbane as part of a nationwide movement inspired by the 40th anniversary of Canberra's Aboriginal Tent Embassy. The Brisbane City Council made several attempts to evict the embassy from Musgrave Park without success, most spectacularly in a dawn raid by hundreds of police two months after it was set up. The Brisbane Sovereign Embassy remains in place today. But what is it like to live in the Brisbane suburb of Petrie today? Stephen Rigall spoke to Petrie resident and artist Kathleen Cameron. The bridge didn't come for quite some time, so that was very um, much a, a shift in the way that the community operated because, for example, when the school was first built, um, they didn't want the little kids crossing the river, so there was a school on both sides of the river and the teacher would actually get in the boat and cross the river at half time but eventually there was a a low level bridge built to stop that so eventually the school was completely moved over to the northern side of the river which even today we have like in 2011 the floods took out our bridge pretty badly so we had to you know get down to one lane which was quite havoc causing they're improving a lot of things around the area, but the, it's, it's always going to be that balance between keeping our history and keeping our environment too, because, you know, there's been a lot of contention with our council wanting to build big roads through ko- koala countries and cut down big trees, and quite thankfully the community have been very forceful in um, showing their disapproval of these particular ideas. What Petrie has been known for for many, many years is the paper mill, which sits right on the river near the AJ Wiley Bridge which is really I think there's only like three places you can cross the river there and that's one of them and um, the other one's the freeway and the other one's a crossing which floods quite you know when they open the dam just in my backyard I mean I've got a creek behind my yard so that's a bit rare not everybody in Petrie has a creek so I was just sitting there this afternoon and I was thinking yesterday too of just the birds in our yard we've got cockatoos and we've got lorikeets and we've got butcher birds and magpies and currawongs and kookaburras and you know you wake up to that every day and you go to you go to sundown with that every day sitting out at four o'clock in the afternoon watching the sunset behind the gum trees and it's a nice balance you know I used to live in the inner city and I loved my life in the inner city and I was a lot younger back then but every time I come in now there's more history gone there's bigger glass buildings, everything's a bit more grey. And that's a short history of Petrie and the Indigenous resistance in southeast Queensland. Didgeridoo music by David Hudson, other music by Combat Wombat. Mm-hmm.
country's native tribes Respect to indigenous people worldwide Worldwide By the early 1980s, the leadership of the Soviet Union had become quite old and set in its ways. Due to the absence of any clear process for a succession of power, many of the party elders feared disgrace and a demoralized old age, rather than looking forward to a comfortable retirement. So when the party had to make a choice, they tended to go for someone of advanced years, so if he proved difficult to work with, at least he wouldn't be around for long. But it meant that the problems surrounding the stagnation of the Soviet economy and the system as a whole also tended to be put in the back burner. Then, in 1985, after the deaths of veteran Andropov and Cherneko, a younger leader was finally appointed, 54-year-old Mikhail Gorbachev. He took over a country that was in long-term economic decline due to an expensive arms race with the USA. Gorbachev's restructuring of the economy and the liberalization of the political system allowed antagonistic forces to come to light, not least of which was the critic Boris Yeltsin, who was elected to a new body called the Congress of People's Deputies in 1988. There was social disruption, the Berlin Wall fell, and there was a sense of liberation among people in Soviet countries. Finally, in 1991, after an aborted coup attempt, the USSR was dissolved. The former republics of the Union became sovereign states for the first time since 1917. And with no union, there could be no president of the Union. And that is how Mikhail Gorbachev came to resign his post. And so it came to pass that in 1991, Boris Yeltsin became the president of a new Russian federation. A popular leader since the late 80s, Yeltsin was perceived to be a democrat, but he would soon introduce the shock doctrine on an unsuspecting nation. Here is Ian Kerr, an announcer with Z for many years, discussing some of the distance ripple effects of the end of the Soviet Union in Australia. These days you can catch Ian every week on Paradigm Shift at Z. Meanwhile at home, the Communist Party of Australia was also dissolved. A force in Australian politics for a great deal of its 70 years, the party was left with a lot of resources to redirect. To do this, they set up the Search Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation to fund the arts and, for example, publishing in the area of political economy. In Brisbane, they had a building on their hands that they wanted to give to a like cause. At the same time, 4ZZZ was looking for a new home they found a willing benefactor in the Communist Party who were willing to dispose of it for a song. Communist Party decided to close up shop because they didn't know what their future held anymore in a changing world and at that point the Communist Party started selling off various assets and leasing out their assets. Uh, of course they own many buildings across Australia and they set up a foundation to run their assets and that was called the Search Foundation. The head of that was the mother of Ray Moynihan, who ultimately worked for Triple Z. And as I understand it, somebody from 4ZZZ during one of its bleaker periods, this would have been in the late 80s, realised that the building was vacant, approached the Search Foundation or the Communist Party, I'm not sure which, and said could they rent the building. And so for a couple of years before I went back to the station, having lived in England with friends who'd worked for Triple Z, we decided it was time to come back and restart the Triple Z newsroom, did that. So producing hourly news bulletins, news inserts all day long, 
But after about uh, four months of doing that, it became apparent to me that the station had so many real problems, uh, one of which was that we were paying rent for a building for an organisation which clearly had a future and the logic was not just to uh, not only to address all of the other problems associated with 4ZZZ, i.e. T- declining audience, bad programming, a number of not very good presenters and some very good presenter as well. The first thing that needed to be done was we needed um, commercial surety with the building and so I approached Josie and Moynihan and said, were the Search Foundation interested in selling the building? And she said, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me, given the long uh, relationship between people who had worked for 4ZZZ, like her son, who ended up working for Four Corners and 7.30 Report, and his girlfriend, I don't think they were married at that time, maybe they were, Marion Wilkinson, who ended up becoming executive producer of Four Corners. She was one of our first journalists that since the station had had such a great reputation, she thought it was quite likely that the Communist Party might be interested and that I should go to Sydney and visit Eric Ahrens, who was in charge of their assets. It was a really amicable meeting. Yes, he was uh, happy to see the building go over to such a great lot of people because he'd heard many stories about the wonderful people that had worked for 4ZZZ, particularly in news and current affairs. So... I went back not knowing what the price would be and the former president of the Communist Party in Queensland, Huey Hamilton, came up with the figure of 210000 which I thought, gee, that sounds pretty good price. And I said to Huey, oh, that sounds like a great price, Huey. And he said, oh, well, what's a building worth? It's worth what somebody's going to pay for it. Um, it could be more, it could be less, but, you know, that seems like a reasonable figure and you sound as if you think you could find that amount of money. Well, obviously we couldn't. One of 4ZZZ's founders there, Jim Beetson. After a career in journalism and management abroad, Jim returned to Brisbane in the early 90s after having just covered the Bougainville conflict in Papua New Guinea. The station had just gone through a very trying period. 4ZZZ left its birthplace at the University of Queensland after an attempted eviction by student union president Victoria Brazil. The move was ultimately unsuccessful, but both the union and the university didn't want the station around anymore. Added to that, 4ZZZ owed a rather large loan to the union for the purchase of its building. So despite gaining the huge swell of support from the student body and others, the few people who actually ran the station decided to cut their losses and move on out. Precariously holding on, even broadcasting from a caravan on Mount Kutha for a while, the station secured temporary lodgings at a building in Tawong, which turned out to be an ill-suited venue. then leased uh, for three years a building opposite the ABC in Tawong, which turned out to have been, Triple Z entered into a lease at the top of the market price. So uh, very quickly market values collapsed and Triple Z was paying a fortune in a contract that they couldn't get out of. And uh, that was during one of a part of an era when heroin became very big at Triple Z. People were falling asleep uh, on graveyard shifts and the newsroom was still 
basically, I wouldn't say it was dead, but the radicalism of the station was in decline because a lot of the really, uh, this sounds snobbish, but I don't mean it to be, but a lot of the really interesting people that were at Triple Z had all gone on to more bigger, brighter, better paying careers in the South. After managing to get out of there and setting up shop in the former Communist Party headquarters at 291 St Paul's Terrace, or as it's known now, 264 Barry Parade, Jim Beatson was able to use his connections with people in the party to broker a deal to buy the building about a year later. My role was quite fundamental in that I had a reputation, along with the station had a great reputation, for having done radical things in the 70s and 80s. And so in the early 90s, when Triple Z was wanting to buy the building from the Communist Party that they were currently renting from the Communist Party, uh, my role was to persuade the former members of the Communist Party, which had gone into dissolution. And it was relatively easy for me who knew a lot of people in the Communist Party from the 60s era and also the 70s era for me to persuade these very same people who were now in their 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s that they should sell the building to us because Triple Z had had a great radical history And at the time, uh, a few people and myself were trying to revive the Triple Z newsroom on the back of a number of us having had successful mainstream careers in journalism. At the time, I was very optimistic that Triple Z would return to its roots that it had developed in the 70s and 80s of being a backbone of radicalism in Brisbane, that Triple Z was the one media outlook that you knew you could rely on to tell you about what was going on in Brisbane, who was screwing who, (laughs) who was exploiting who, uh, all the evil things that the government, police, businessmen, and the many good things that many policemen politicians and businessmen do. They're not all evil, but plenty of them are, and plenty of them are a mixture of both. And Triple Z could be relied upon more than any other media outlet, certainly immeasurably more than the Courier-Mail, and at the time, all of commercial radio, we could be relied upon to act as the people's champion. And so it was fairly easy for me to persuade the Communist Party that we were resuming that role and would continue that role. Heather Anderson, a long-term volunteer with 4ZZZ. On the 24th of September of 1993, the Courier-Mail reported, Station workers buy the building. The Courier-Mail is reporting on when 4ZZZ bought the building that it now resides in. Um, so we moved into that building, I think, around 1992. We started renting it to start off with, but the cheque was actually handed over in um, 1993. I think that this is a really important part of 4ZZZ's history and, and, and therefore of Brisbane's history was that moment where we actually owned our own home for the first time and, and had a real sense of stability. So there's actually like the news story, the station workers by the building news story. And I really like that headline because it's it keeps in line with the way that 4ZZZ was being run as a collective. So rather than 4ZZZ, the station, or creative broadcasters, the company buying the building, it's the station workers by the building, which I think is a really accurate portrayal, which is a kind of funny thing to say about the Korean Mail, really, when you think of it. 
and remembering how good it felt to to finally um, own our own home. So the photo is taken from the car park, um, yeah, towards the back of the building, but that was the front of the building. So um, our address, it was um, St. Paul's Terrace. If people refer to St. Paul's Terrace as being the address for Triple Z, that's people that were there in the 90s um, because we used to have to go up those, what would now be the back steps that go up to where um, the staff and volunteers work. That was actually front desk and the first point of contact back then. Yeah, so that, that disgusting kitchen was the first thing you saw when you showed up at Triple Z. And that's the story of Our House. Our house in the middle of our streets. Our house in the middle of our... I remember way back then when everything was true when we would have such a very good time, such a fine time, such a happy time. And I remember how we'd play, simply waste the day away, then we'd say nothing would